Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, grace and peace to you. Uh, we are going uh, to begin a series on our worship gathering next week. And to prepare for that series, I've been spending a lot of time in the letter of Hebrews. And it is an amazing letter, full of so many beautiful themes and important things for us. And so I thought, having been familiar with that letter for quite some time now, I will bring out some of its riches to you this morning. And what I want to try to do is summarize the flow of thought from chapters 10 to chapter 12 and then demonstrate what that means for us. So very simple um, outline and objective this morning. Now, there's not a lot we know about the letter of Hebrews. Its origins are quite obscure and we don't know the particular circumstances and so on and so forth. However, we do know that the letter of Hebrews was written to a church or a subgroup within a church tempted to return to their former Judaism. So they had become Christians, they had trusted in the Lord Jesus, and for some reason or another, now they're wanting to go back to Judaism. That is to leave Christ and the church for Moses and the Torah and the temple with its priesthood and sacrificial system. Now, why are they contemplating a return to this former way of life? It seems what we can tell from the letter, there's two things. There's someone or some group of people making powerful um, theological and doctrinal arguments. So scholars are reasonably sure that the recipients of this letter are Jewish Christians likely living in Jerusalem which, of course, is the center of religious power at the time. So there would have been many scribes and many learned uh, rabbis capable of pointing out the quote-unquote flaws and inconsistencies of this new heretical sect. And so some probably found their uh, critique against this new Christian religion as convincing. And then second, the church community that is addressed in this letter is facing strong persecution. Just prior to our reading in chapter 11, the author reminds uh, the group that he's writing to of the former days when he says, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. That's chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. In other words, they faced open ridicule and contempt from their neighbors. But also, he adds, even they had their property confiscated by the authorities. That's chapter 10, verse 34. So the picture we get, although unclear, is of a small and beleaguered church community facing external pressures of every kind, causing some within that church to begin to crack. Now, considering renouncing the faith and returning to Judaism. So, an exhortation that repeatedly arises throughout the letter is the author telling this group of believers to hold fast to your confession. To hold fast to your confession. Now, the author doesn't mean confession as in an admission of guilt. 
Rather, he means confession more along the lines of a profession. These brothers and sisters have confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And now he urges them to stand by their confession no matter the consequences, no matter how much the heat is turned up in Jerusalem. At one point, the author compares their situation to that of Esau, a figure from the book of Genesis. Now, Esau sold his birthright, that is, his family inheritance, as the firstborn for a bowl of beans, or the red stuff, as he calls it. That's Genesis 25. That was a terrible deal for Esau. And the author of Hebrews says it's the same sort of deal that these believers are about to make, exchanging their eternal inheritance in Christ for basically, at this point, an obsolete system in Judaism. And that brings us to our passage um, and the real crux of the matter. The author now makes a direct appeal to his audience. Next slide, please. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 36. He says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Now, there's a lot happening here, and we'll come to it in time. But primarily, the thing that this church community lacks is endurance. At the end of the road, there lies a great reward, the author says. But they're already slowing down. They're already looking behind them, and they're rummaging around for other paths to take. So he spurs them on and encourages them to stay the course, that is, to continue on according to the will of God. Because they will only receive what was promised if they endure. They will only arrive at the city of God if they gain endurance. Hence, endurance, sticking it out through great hardship and difficulty, is the pastoral theme running through chapters 10, 11, and 12. In the passage we just read, he says, you have need of endurance. Then he's going to direct us how to obtain endurance, that is, through faith to the persevering of the soul, chapter 10, verse 39. And then in chapter 11, he will parade before us examples of such persevering faith, the saints of old. And then he'll circle around and reinforce his message again, chapter 12, verse 1, by saying, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then he points to the greatest example of endurance, of persevering faith, that is Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, Chapter 12, verse 2. And then he culminates his whole argument throughout these chapters by reminding us of God's fatherly care. God is using the hardships and the persecutions that befall us to discipline us. That is, to make us holy, that we might share in his holiness. Chapter 12, verse 10. And of course, that discipline is rather painful in the moment, but in the end, it yields, the author says, the peaceable fruit of of righteousness, 
chapter 12, verse 11. Therefore, he concludes, he brings everything he's saying to its crescendo, and he says, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. We see from this situation and how the author of Hebrews exhorts this church community that sometimes we need to be challenged in the midst of our hardships rather than consoled. Now, the author is certainly compassionate toward his readers, but he is not appeasing them or alleviating them. What they need is not for their suffering to go away, because it's not. Their situation is not going to change anytime soon. Rather, what they need is to become stronger. They need endurance. I'm reminded how God answered Jeremiah when he complained to him about the state of things. God told him, if you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? You have need of endurance. Now, if you had to come up with a metaphor for the Christian life or for the life of discipleship, what would it be? What would you reach for in our human experience and say, the life of discipleship is like this? Now, I'm sure there are many helpful sort of metaphors like that. But without a doubt, the not helpful ones would be metaphors that make it sound, that is, the life of discipleship, that make it sound too easy or comfortable. It's like a cup of tea by the fire. It's like a stroll down by the river on a nice day or something like that. Rather, the metaphor that we are given is a race, a race that requires great endurance. I've taken up uh, distant running, distance running recently, so I'm learning a thing or two about endurance. And I think, as in the physical race, so in the spiritual one, the most important aspect is mental preparation. Now, I asked you what metaphor you would use to describe the life of discipleship because how you imagine the Christian life and how you conceptualize it determines what you are going to expect from it. If you imagine that being a disciple of Jesus Christ is a non-arduous, non-demanding thing, you are going to be rudely surprised when you're dropped into the second mile of a marathon. Your understanding of the faith, what it is and what it requires from you, has led you astray, unprepared about what you are to face. So I think one of the most helpful things that we can do for ourselves and for those seeking to become disciples is to be realists about it. That's the sober counsel that Jesus gave to the large crowds who followed him as he journeyed throughout Jerusalem, or rather Judea. In case they were expecting something different, he warns them to count the cost. Whether they, like a king who goes out to war, or a man who builds a tower, have the resources and the will to see it through. 
A distance runner is not surprised when her body begins to break down on mile 20. A mountaineer is not surprised when he has to spend the night in a snowstorm. And neither should we be surprised as disciples of Jesus Christ when it becomes costly, when the road becomes difficult. That comes with the territory. However, notice what the author says. The thing that we have need of is endurance. He does not say something extraordinary or superhuman like valor or daring or fearlessness. Rather, he says something quite mundane within the grasp of all of us, and that is endurance. We are not asked to be something great, to be something extraordinary, but simply, at the end of the day, not to give up. That's what we're asked. That's what required, that's what's required of us, to keep on moving. A disciple is simply someone who hangs in there. All a Christian is that separates us from everybody else is that we hang in. And when we fall, we get back up and we keep on moving. We are going to stumble along the way. We are going to be weighed down. We are going to be diverted from the road. So be it. That's okay. Just keep moving. Get back on your feet and keep moving. And at the end of the day, listen, that's all that is asked from you. That's all that God requires is endurance. Keep going. So in our lives, there are many hardships that test our endurance, that we must persevere through. But in the case of our passage, it's persecution. This church community is suffering at the hands of their countrymen for the sake of the truth. Now, in order to encourage them, the author points them to Christ, for whose name they suffer. He says, or rather, he underscores the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified outside the city gates, that is, outside the walls of Jerusalem. That's chapter 13, verse 12. Jesus was quite literally cast out of the city, expelled from its company. As John says, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And the author by referring to Jesus' crucifixion outside the city of Jerusalem, means to point out what happens to those who belong to God in a world that is turned against him. So he concludes, chapter 3, verse 13, emulating Jesus, he says, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Jesus was crucified outside the city, therefore let us go outside the city, bearing his reproach. So he encourages this group of believers facing this persecution to accept their lot as followers of Jesus. He was expelled from the world. Jesus was. He was put to death outside the city gates. And as he says, John 12, 26, where I am, there my servant will be also. So he encourages us not to be disheartened or ashamed we may be cast out of the world. We may become objects of reproach, but such was the lot of Jesus. And we go out of the city to be with him. However, reproach 
Being expelled from the city is not the last word. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, in order that he might sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. He was expelled from one city, that is, the earthly Jerusalem, only to be received into another city, the heavenly Jerusalem. And here the author says, speaking now to us, we do not have a lasting city. There is no earthly home for us. But we are seeking the city to come, the heavenly Jerusalem. In other words, he says, this is the great reward that is awaiting us. Where Jesus is, so long as we endure, so long as we hang in. And if we go out from the world to suffer with reproach with Jesus, if we are cast out of the world, the promise is that we will be welcomed into his kingdom. Again, the going out of the camp has nothing to do with physical relocation, but bearing reproach from our neighbors in Jesus' name. In other words, to find ourselves outside the city gates means to find ourselves outside the acceptance and welcome of human society. In short, it means, as we read, to be strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, more and more, the situation that this church community faced is the one that we are facing. It used to be that in Western society, Christianity was the good guy. Rather than on the wrong side of the law, one author writes that we were the law. Christian morality was assumed, and it passed by mainly unchallenged. And the cultural and legal and political structures of society affirmed Christians. And so for a time, we might say, residents of the heavenly city, of the New Jerusalem, or the New Jerusalem were welcomed into the earthly city. Then things changed. Over the past 100 years or so, we became not the good guy, but just one of the guys. One option among many. A voice to be considered, but not followed unquestioningly. So Christianity was not necessarily a bad thing, but neither was it necessarily a good thing. It was just there. It worked for some and not for others. And for the most part, that's the situation that we remember, that we grew up in. However, things have changed once again. Increasingly, Christianity is viewed not as the good guy, not as just one of the guys, but as the bad guy. And it's no longer an option, it's a problem. That is, our views are not seen merely as laughable and outdated, but as harmful and repressive. And the cultural and legal and political power that we once controlled is now armed against us. So it's a new thing for us to be the bad guys. It's a surprising situation. But the truth is, in reality, it is nothing new. In fact, this is quite normal. Many times in the past, the church has been the bad guy. Jesus 
for example, was led outside the city to be crucified, suspended in the air, neither received by heaven or earth. Paul says that the apostles have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and men, fools for Christ's sake, 1 Corinthians 4. And we know how our brothers and sisters have suffered and borne reproach throughout history and still to this day in many parts of the world. So we're the bad guys now, and that's fine. We have to accept that situation and move on because for the foreseeable future, it's not going to change. Our place in the earthly city has been revoked And now we must see ourselves for who we truly are, strangers and exiles on earth, seeking the city that is to come. Now, as we noted, this is nothing new, and this is what the author of Hebrews wants us to know. From the beginning of time until now, this has always been the case. The people of God are exiles and strangers in the world, and therefore they suffer hardship. Their home is in the heavenly Jerusalem. And so he directs us to our forebearers to consider the result of their conduct and to imitate their faith. So endurance is the quality that we need to overcome reproach and persecution. It is the quality we need to reach the great reward that awaits us, And endurance is fostered within us through the power of faith. We need endurance, and it's fostered within us through the power of faith. So returning to a previous text, the author quotes from the prophet and says, next slide please, for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Again, faith is the means by which the soul perseveres. Faith is the means by which it gains endurance and becomes inconquerable. And it's this inconquerable power of faith that's demonstrated in the lives of the saints, of our forebearers. Now, the author introduces this great chapter on these figures of faith by providing a thoroughly practical definition of faith rather than a theological one. He says, chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Now in the original, the word translated conviction has the basic meaning of test or trial. In other words, faith tests the things that are unseen by acting as though they were present and visible. That is, faith evaluates or appraises the unseen promises of God and finds them trustworthy and lives according to them. It's a a bit like crossing uh, an old bridge or a fallen tree if you're out on a hike. 
if you're not crazy, you put it to a stress test to find out if the thing is stable. And once you're assured it is, once you're confident that it can bear your weight, you cross over. Now, faith does the same in regard to the promises of God. It sees through appearances which so often deceive the way things appear or or the way the situation reads to purely human eyes. It sees through all that to find bedrock. And once it finds that bedrock, that ventures forth on it, fully assured that what God has promised, he is able to perform. Romans 4 21. And so primarily, these things not seen, these unseen realities are not abstract spiritual entities, but simply the future. Again, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is oriented toward the future. It's oriented toward the things that remain unseen because they have yet to be revealed in the course of time. So faith is the capacity to see the unseen future that God promises and wager everything on it. To act against common sense, to act against sound reason or the way things are. Faith sees past the way things are in the present to what they will be in the future when the promises come true. And it acts according to that reality and not the reality that we see now. And it's this faith, it's this confidence in the future that God promised that animated all the saints of the past. Their actions were guided by a promise concerning the future at a time when it was impossible to see the outcome. And thus their actions And their lives seemed absurd and ridiculous at the time. But when the promise came true, they were vindicated. They were shown to be acting according to the truth. So the author then parades all these figures before us. We'll pick up with Noah. Noah defied the world and constructed an ark while the watery judgment was still afar off. Ridiculous Noah building his boat, and yet he was vindicated. Abraham went out to the promised land based on the command of God, not knowing where he was going. And he lived there as a nomad, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Sarah and so on and so forth. He and Sarah bore children even though she was barren, and Abraham himself was as good as dead. The author sums up, Next slide, please. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. All these died in faith. Listen, they died in faith without receiving the promises. Abraham was promised this patch of land. And the only time, the only land that he ever bought was a place where he could bury his bones. They died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance... And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, 
They would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It's the same faith that we are summoned to emulate, to defy the things that are seen as weak and passing, to see the things that are unseen and welcome them from a distance. And if we are to endure in this life, if we are to persevere to the end, this is absolutely necessary. So long as the world and its reproaches appear to us as the substantial and abiding thing, there is no perseverance. One cannot hope to stand up to that which is ultimate. If the world is ultimate, if the persecutions of this world seem like the final thing, then there is no endurance for us. But what if it's not? And what if what seems so imposing and terrible and permanent today will be gone tomorrow? And that's the wager that faith makes. That at the end, the reality, the truth will be that the city of God comes to dwell on earth. That's ultimate reality, and that's what we wager our lives on. So faith sees that the earthly city which its inhabitants stake their lives on is without foundations. That one day, the author of Hebrews will say later, God will shake the heaven and the earth. So that which is impermanent will fall away. This world and all its systems that are against Christians will disappear. And what will remain are things that are eternal. So faith sees that. It sees through the mirage to the heavenly city, the unshakable kingdom. And when faith can do that, then endurance is born. Then nothing can stop the church. The reproaches of our neighbors are not ultimate. They're going to pass. The burden is not unbearable. It's actually light. And the road, yes, it is arduous, but faith carries us forward. Now, in chapter 11, the author lingers over Moses as an example of uh, worth of uh, emulation, particularly so. Moses refused the earthly city, that is Egypt. Right? Remember, he was brought up by the daughter of Pharaoh. He refused the earthly city and the passing pleasures of sin and all the glories of Egypt to endure ill treatment with his people esteeming the reproaches of the cross greater than any riches that the world could offer. Now, why would Moses do this? Why would you turn down all that to go suffer with these slave people? The author says, verse 26, he was looking to the reward. And so long as the reward remains before our eyes, through faith, we are able to do the same. To leave behind the passing pleasures of the world that will one day be shaken and come crumbling down to bear the reproaches of the world because 
There is a city that has foundations which awaits us. So thus far, the author's argument is very simple. In order to reach the destination, the city of God, we need endurance. And endurance comes through faith. And in this case, how do we obtain faith? By considering the witness of those who have gone before us. That they walked that road of faith to the end, and it did not return empty. It's usually not intellectual arguments or doctrinal formulas that are going to give us the faith to endure. It's seeing that faith lived out heroically and defiantly in the lives of the holy ones of the past, and that it was not in vain. Think of the Apostle Paul when he was thrown into prison in Philippians chapter 1. He says, Because of my chains, many brothers have grown strong and more bold to preach the word. It's the example of faith when someone walks courageously according to it that inspires faith within us. So at last, the author's exhortation to remain true to our confession comes to its conclusion. He writes, next slide please. Oh, there it is. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. A cloud of witnesses surrounds us, he says, but they are not watching us, as is commonly thought. We are watching them. It's their lives which witness to us, demonstrating the power of faith. These great witnesses of the past endured, overcoming the world, suffering great trials and tribulations, overcoming and accomplishing great things, and we are to draw on their example, emulating their faith. And what does that look like? Well, he says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, the example of our brothers and sisters encourages us to run with abandon leaving behind anything that slows our pace to pursue our goal with a single-minded focus. Now, he mentions two things that are to be laid aside. Every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, an encumbrance is something that is not necessarily wrong by nature. Now, I run because I like it and because I want to be somewhat healthy. But let's say... I wanted to max out my potential as a runner. A lot would have to change. I'd have to get rid of every encumbrance in my diet, in my sleeping patterns, in my free time, and etc. Because many of the habits I currently have are moving in the opposite direction against my goal. So in the same manner, the author wants each and every one of us to take inventory, as it were to identify and remove unnecessary encumbrances. It may not be wrong, whatever it is, but it's certainly not helping us along the way. So why, he seems to say, hold on to it? 
Why be slowed down needlessly? That's the goal. That's what remains. Everything else will be shaken and come crumbling to the dust. Now, the other thing that bogs us down is sin. And it does more than bog us down. It entangles us. It literally stops us from running. It binds our legs and constricts our lungs so that we have to stop the journey. And if we are to run the race at all, it has to be left behind. So the author has paraded these past saints before us who have done exactly this, who have laid aside every encumbrance and every sin which so easily entangles us. And now he culminates his tour in Jesus. Next slide, please. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the idea here is that Jesus has gone before us in the race which we now run. He blazed the trail originally as its author, opening for us a way to the eternal city. And now we are running behind him on the road that he has paved as he perfects our faith. And so we know that the road we take with all its great demands upon us is not vain, or not in vain rather, because Jesus has trod it before us. He's taken the road all the way to the end and opened it past that to the eternal city. We're on his road, and we know that if we follow it, we'll get to where we want to go. At the end, there truly is glory and immortality and a kingdom awaiting. And we know that we shall make it. Because the one who started us down this journey of faith is there to sustain us along the way. The author and perfecter of faith. So we shall not fail. We shall endure. And on that last day, join the great company in the eternal city surrounding the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb. So I invite you guys forward now to come and receive the elements of the supper, to take them back to your places, to spend time in communion with the Lord, and I will lead us in Just one moment.